Welcome back, everybody, to Uncensored CMO. Now, in this episode, we're talking about entrepreneurship, and I'm joined by Tash Courtney-Smith, who is a multiple entrepreneur. She started lots of different businesses, and I wanted to find out what it's like starting a business and also about building your own brand. She also happens to be an expert in D2C. So we got into a real conversation about the state of D2C and what's going on and what you can do to be effective in that marketplace. Now, also, um, as the recently crowned Performance Marketer of the Year, we have a brilliant conversation, Performance Marketers, Performance Marketers. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Here's my conversation with Tash. So Tash Courtney-Smith, welcome to the Uncensored CMO. Thank you for having me here. Good to have you. Um, well, let's start at the beginning because you started your career in journalism, didn't you? Which I sounds did like a lot of fun. So, how did all that come about? I think journalism was massive. If you think back as old as I am, you know, if you if you remember the power of monthly magazines and the power of the media and the glamour of them, I was very attracted to that world. I think when I was younger, I loved magazines. I think like most girls, I just loved reading magazines. I was absolutely desperate to get a job on magazines. So I did get a job in magazines. And then that led after about uh, about four years to me joining the Daily Mail, where I stayed for another four years, which was incredibly um I guess it's a tough environment, but I did really love it. And I feel it's really actually shaped my career and the way I work and think quite a lot, even though that was still a long time ago now. So what, as, as a marketer, what can we learn from kind of the world of journalism and press? Because so it's, it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? And I just think it's something that not many of us understand no. how to operate in that kind of environment. What, I mean, what would your I be? think a lot of the success we've had in the work I've done since, whether that's in my own companies or with an agency or even what we do now with DTC Live comes back to journalism. And I always think, well, I'm only doing what I did on the Daily Mail. All I'm doing is doing what we did. We all did on the Daily Mail. I know that any Daily Mail staff member could come in and work in my businesses and do similar types of things. I mean, essentially, there's two elements that I think are really useful for everybody's, for any business or marketing. First is running a production. So everything about content, publishing, audience attention you have to there's an underlying production there a national daily national newspaper production you can that no paper have you ever seen a paper go out with an empty page no so the production never fails okay the the balance of too much stuff to go out against getting the best stuff out against the production processes across all the national newspapers or any you know regularly printed publication is, is is an incredible um it's an incredible setup and I still run productions now and I always think even if my production gets has its stressful moments, which it does, I think, God, this is nothing like the Daily Mail production. Like I just need to man up and get on with it because this is these people are running these daily productions of national newspapers and indeed television every single day. So the first thing is having a production and running a production, understanding, you know, how much content you actually need to get through and get it through fast and understand what fast content production looks like. The second thing is understanding cut through. So a lot of the brands we work with now will talk about cut through. And it's just because they're so used to thinking in a brand world. So if you go on to any tabloid, okay, you essentially, in the Daily Mail, probably wouldn't call itself a tabloid, but probably is a tabloid. Essentially, you always have to have really strong headlines. You, you'll, you'll get given a story and you have to know what you should lead with, what's the strongest bit, what's the most unique bit, what's the most left field bit. And that's what we bring to the brands we work with. And I don't know, I try and train my team and some of my team are naturally quite good at this. Others aren't. I don't know if I think you learn this through the daily ardour of putting forward pieces and then seeing the paper go to press without your piece in it oh. and thinking, better <laughs> it try been. harder next yes. time, you know, and, you know and, and you just see what makes the paper. You see, you see how 
someone will come in with, you know, and they'll say, this is my story and blah, blah, blah. And then the paper will be like, okay, great. Obviously their story is as it is, but we we need the strongest angle to lead with. And against all the external circumstances, the story, what's going on, what's topical, they will pull out an angle. Yeah. And I think that's really important for it's marketers. It's a great skill, isn't it? It's funny, actually, because on, on the podcast, like, um, you know, when James and I are recording this, we we very rarely have to do anything different live. It, it usually runs fairly smoothly, although I shouldn't say that now, should I, as, as we're recording. But anyway, could go wrong. Um, but the, the biggest debate we have every single week is what do we call the episode? At one level, there you have it. Sometimes it's been hours, like literally on a Tuesday night trying I, to figure out. After the Daily Mail, I, I had a business which was a story brokering agency, which we might talk about. But essentially, you were then p- pitching in content. And we used to find you'd pitch in a story. You'd think, OK, this person has a good story. You'd pitch it in. No one would take it. You'd wait a week, pitch it in with a different headline. You'd have a bidding war and the same story would go for 30 grand. So it's all about the headline the angle and the moment in time, because something will will land one week because of external the external news environment, topicality and what people are thinking about and then won't be relevant the next. That's very, very interesting. Well, let's come on to that, because one of the things I love about your career is that you know, very early in your career, you decided to jump and start becoming a, a founder, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, so, so what was your first business and how did that come around? Well, my first business was a story brokering agency called Talk to the Press, which still exists today. Essentially, it did deals for your story. So you're a member of public, you got you want to tell your story. And then the reasons are very broad, ranging from what everyone will jump to, kiss and tell girls, through to charities, through to people who are caught up in the headlines. And, you know, that came about because I love journalism, and I, but I realised I was not going to be able to stay at the Daily Mail and have children. So really it was about, okay, I don't want to leave this industry. I'm I'm really into it, but I have to set up a more flexible way of working before I have children. Now, the media is very different now because of the law and things like that. But back then it was not a very forgiving environment. You know, that you you would often get sent, always be sent, right, you're off here, you're off there to all sorts of places across the UK abroad. It was just clearly not going to be possible to have children and continue working at the mail. So that was my main motivation. And then I thought, well, you know, I was I I was getting into the internet. It was 2007. One of the one of my struggles as a journalist was finding stories. I was absolutely hopeless at it, to be honest. I was very good. You know, the day, the mail buys in a lot of stories, and I'd be sent to a lot of families in very tragic situations. So I was very good at dealing with people under press attention and having to and managing their story. But I was not good at finding them. So I thought, well, you know, what if I use this Google thing and set up a website and maybe someone will find me and I, that will be one less story I have to find. In actual fact, this site went live with like me as the face saying, do you need help doing with press attention? I was the first one to set up a sort of story sourcing website. I did a lot of work on SEO and from day one, that website delivered exclusive stories every single day. Wow, that makes, I hadn't really realised that that layer existed, but it makes sense because if you're a journalist and you're under pressure at a publication to get, you know, get, get, get a story out there, um, you haven't got much time, have you? Where presumably you, you're providing the stories for the journalists to include. I mean, we include. could do a whole different ex- episode on how the media works. But essentially, yes, you know, journalists have no time and all the stories are funneled up to the national press from regions. So normally a region will be a county. Someone will set up in a county and decide to take ownership of that county in an unofficial way. There'll be a journalist that'll be like, I'm working this patch. It's all very, you know, informal, but formal. And the stories get funneled up from the regions into television or whatever. And then at the same time, you have huge breaking stories, i.e. what's happening right now in the news and Israel and all the families that are affected by that. And they will have journalists go to them. So the journalists will focus their attention 
on the breaking stories. Generally, the staff journalists will. At the same time, the paper will be buying in all sorts of stories that are being funneled up from the regions. And it, and often there's overlap. You'll have people in the middle of a breaking story. Will and, and I was lucky to be there at the beginning. They first started Googling, what should I do? The press are on my door. I was the first person to put up a website in response to that. I didn't know. There's a, there's a version I could give you where I could make out I was very foresightful. <laughs> I was just very bad at finding stories, really. And I wanted to make it easy for people to find me. That's amazing. And it did, did turn out. So did it work the other way around as well? So if, if, I, if I, something had happened to me and, and, and I wanted to kind of talk to the press... Then you, you can also kind of you kind of matching the story to the press. Totally, you're packaging so the story and getting a deal, but you're managing the story seller as such throughout. So, you know, the, it, it, this, the pricing is generally the daily tabloids and the weekend tabloids will pay the most. But then you can also place the same story into magazines, television, and books. So really, the story seller needs a representative for that whole process if they want the most variety, the most money, and the most coverage. Otherwise, they're handling themselves. They'll do a deal with the sun and then they're all by themselves again. They're suddenly dealing with this morning and all these television shows. You know, it's very, it's a, the truth about the story selling industry is most people are only selling a story or having press on their doorstep because something terrible has happened to them. That is not a time you need to be learning how to also manage press, maintain control over your story, Make sure your story goes through the best arc, whether that's value or reach or books or TV or whatever you want for it. So, and that was really the approach we took was we always used to say, I always used to be very aware. Look, the only reason I'm meeting you is because, you know, some, someone's been murdered or whatever, you know, typical stuff. And I used to say one thing I hated, and I think this is because I lost my dad when I was 15 is fake, fake um, sympathy, right? So lots of people say, I'm so sorry about your dad. And people still don't say that to me now. And I think... I don't like that. So I used to say to these story sellers, and this is one of the reasons the Daily Mail sent me into these situations so much. I used to be like, I'm not going to pretend that like, the only reason we're meeting is because something terrible has happened to you and you are now have all these press on your doorstep. I cannot help you. We'll not, we'll not express sort of fake sympathy beyond what's reasonable. I'm not going to make you my best friend, but I will take away this whole element of this other side that's hit you at the same time, which is the national media are now here. And that is a nightmare. Imagine for a family, some of the families I've seen, the circumstances they are in, to have to deal with the press at the same time is horrific. So we were able to take all that off them and manage the whole story process. But yes, you're packaging up the story. You have to put the best angle on it. You have to pitch it into the papers and they either buy it or they don't buy it. And so what happened next? You, you created this business and then you sold it after a few years. What, so what were the challenges in kind of creating your, because you're presumably quite young at this point, aren't you, early in your career? Yeah, I was about, I was 27, I think, when I set it up. Yeah. So what are the kind of challenges in building that business? Then how did you come to then sell it? Well, I didn't even know it was a business, okay? I just, <laughs> in the beginning, I, I just it. thought it was a website. Um, and I just thought there's some people in America doing some cool things with websites. So I'll just follow all these American websites. And these were people, I don't know if you'll know them, but the likes of Derek Halpin, some of the American visible experts at the time who were teaching CRO lead, but list, you know, the usual make money online crowd, but at this point they were teaching SEO. I was like, whatever these guys say, I'm just going to do what they say. So I just thought it was a website and I was a freelance journalist until I went to James Kahn's Entrepreneurs Business Academy. I didn't have the language of business. I was a journalist, you know, I was a daily newspaper journalist um, who was largely sent to deal with tragedies. So my world was that. I had no idea about business, entrepreneurship, anything really, until I went to James Kahn's Entrepreneurs Business Academy, which gave me the vocabulary to understand that, okay, this was a business and also the understanding that it, it might be an asset and that really I should try and make sure it's an asset that I can sell. 
because then I would be an entrepreneur. I sort of thought, well, if you've sold something, you're an entrepreneur, aren't you? So I was like 28 at the time. That's amazing. But how, how, how smart to go and get someone like him to help you, you know, get the support from him. I mean, that's an amazing place to go for, for advice. Well, I can't even remember how I heard about it, but he was running you know, tra- essentially a training academy that he'd endorsed. It was in partnership with someone else and you got to meet him and he gave you a testimony and they taught you all this stuff. And, you know, I don't know how I, I don't know where I found it, but I applied and got and got in, but I'm not sure how high the bar was, to be <laughs> honest, but definitely for sure. I learned the vocabulary. But, but e- even as you tell the story there, there's something quite powerful, the fact that you, you were willing to give it a go and you, oh, and totally, you, were, yeah. you, you were looking for support, but you I were always trying to find done. the answers, which is I, amazing. I think most entrepreneurs do, it's that autodidact yeah. thing. Yeah. I've always, that's why I was always saying, I'd always look to what people, I used to go to New York and go to conferences just to like hear what they were doing. So I always had this view that people in America are ahead of us in terms of marketing and modern marketing. And yeah, I've all, I, I just thought, well, I, you know, I, I don't know. I can't, I just thought, I need the help. There's, there's something really good about that mindset. Cause I know something I've struggled with is, is I, I feel I have to know the answer before I do it. And it, whereas actually you're just going, going and find the answer. My partner said to me, actually, it's really funny because he's more like you, but he said that I exist in two week sprints and then figure it out as I go along. And I thought that might be true to be honest. Yeah. Cause I always think get the money in first. You can sort the company afterwards, get the money in, you can sort the delivery. Don't make yourself under ridiculous pressure, but like get to the next level and then you can sort it. I think it. that's brilliant. You advice, yeah. I don't think you can have the whole thing figured yeah, out, yeah. but I, I know a lot of people do and hats off to them. That's not how I, 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 do I don't it. know if they do. I mean, I, I just figure out, I need to have it all figured out, but I think you're right. I think because so, so often you actually learn by the process of doing yeah, it. Don't you? Yeah. And the answer comes as you do it, but yeah. in your head, you're thinking, I can't possibly do this because I, I don't know how to do it. And then you know, you have to take the jump, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I had no idea. You know, I ended up selling Talk to the Press about six years afterwards after starting it. And I'd found it quite a struggle at various points. Obviously, all businesses are, you know, there's moments where you just think, oh my God, you know, it's going to be a disaster. It's all those. Um, and you just, you just never know. If I'd known that it was only a six year period, I often think that I would have enjoyed it so much more, but you don't know that at the time. You don't. One of the, um, I love James Kahn's book, actually. One of the stories that just really made me laugh was when he started out with his uh, recruitment agency and he thought to build my brand, he needs to be in the poshest part of town. So he actually rented a cupboard in Mayfair uh, as his post office box. And apparently he used to say that whenever anyone phoned him up, he said, unfortunately, all our meeting rooms are busy at the moment, but let's meet around the corner at the Ritz for coffee. And next time you can come to the office kind of thing until he got so, you know big enough that he could actually afford the office in Mayfair. Fair, but I just thought the you know the, the confidence of the guy just to kind of and it's a brilliant you know, idea, isn't it? And people think, my God, you're not only in Mayfair, but his office is so bustling. There's it's no so room busy for me that, today. You know, exactly. So they have he must in their have so many this picture of this just, full office. I just thought the audacity was I brilliant. Know. But yeah, I used to do something similar actually when I was first in journalism and talked to the press, and I needed to make contacts. Obviously, I'd only been at the Daily Mail. I didn't know other people on other papers, and I needed to go around. And you used to have a thing, something called a portfolio. You'd go around and show your work. Most people knew who I was because I was a Daily Mail staff writer. You know, the staff writers have a lot of content out. Every, every week, you'll be having big pieces out. So people knew my name. But anyway, not everybody would see me because they're just busy. So then I used to do this thing. I'd say, hi, I'm, by the way, I'm in your building on Tuesday. So I thought I'd drop in while I'm there. I wasn't in the building at all. Oh, that's a classic. That's a classic. I've, I've used that one Yeah, before. and it always yeah, works, yeah. right? And then when you're uh, yeah. in the building, like, right, who else is in this yeah, building? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who else am I going to say? I, I, I've even done the, um, 
can I can I work from your reception for a couple of hours because I you know I'm between meetings. Is it okay? Talk to receptionist and go. Can I just sit in the corner here and then wait for the that. person to walk past? And they go, oh, funnily enough, I was just passing and I noticed you. <laughs> I haven't done you that. You know, actually, an old um, a, a colleague of mine, actually, Marcus, uh, used to uh, I think once a month actually go to Tesco head office and it's a little Costa Coffee, and he'd spend the entire day in the Costa Coffee at head office waiting for the buyer. To walk in. I mean, in. that works. And then you go, oh, David, you, you know, you're in. I, I've been meaning to see you sort of thing. You know, it's just, you know, the, 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 these are the dark arts, aren't they? They are Getting the dark arts, going. but they do work. They do, don't they? Well, look, um, you've started a number of businesses. What would be your advice to somebody maybe listening that's thinking of doing something like you've done and they want to venture out for the first time? What, what advice would you give them? I have started a number of businesses and they're all sort of different, but in my mind, of course, they're all related. I think I generally try and take the same approach, which is to get the sale, to get to the security of a first sale, and then you can start putting in costs behind it. I also do things like if I know something new's coming up, I mean, I generally in life try to keep my costs really low and I never sort of up-level my lifestyle. No matter what my income is, I still pay myself the same allowance I paid myself when I was like 22 because... I don't want my lifestyle to become prohibitive to plans I might have. So I also try and, you know, crush down lifestyle costs so that the business, because the business needs time. There's, I don't think there's a way around that. Even if you're raising funding, you, you still need time to raise that funding. So you need to remove all other pressures of lifestyle, having to have certain, as much as you can. And it's obviously different depending on where you're at in life. But to try and protect the business and give the business a chance. So I lower my costs. I try and get to the first sale as quickly as possible, even if I don't exactly know what the team or delivery is going to look like, because everything can be sorted out. What's harder to sort out is when a business is just losing money or costing you a lot of money. That then becomes harder to sort out, whereas actually everything can be sorted out if you're in a position of a degree of um, sort of safety that you can give it time. So that's really been my general approach. You're right, on, you're right on the timing as well. I, 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 I've spent most of my career doing soft drinks. And um, I did this study of the 20 most successful soft drink launches of the, the prior 10 years. And it was really fascinating, actually, that um, how few of them ever got to a million pounds, even taking the best ones. Very few of them actually succeeded. But the, 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 the thing I remember the most was, um, on average, it took, I mean, this is in a particular category, yeah. I know, but it took on average seven years to get to what anyone would consider a success. And what was interesting is everyone thought the brand was an overnight success. You take, I don't know, Monster was, was, was a particularly successful energy drink launch 15 years ago. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, we saw it everywhere. But if you look at it, it was, you know, actually that was probably one of the most successful ones. But if you look at Red Bull, you look at Fever Tree, that they spent quite a number of years under the radar. No one had heard of them, not making any money, you know, doing all the hard yards. It takes, it can take a long time. I mean, even like this, this podcast is like, you know, it, it, this is, I think we're into the fifth year now, done four years. And you look at, if you look at the numbers, it'd be like, you know, little, 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 up a little bit, up a little bit, woo, there it goes sort of thing. But it took like three or four years. I mean, everything takes, I, I think that's right. And people should be prepared for that. I think that's, that's absolutely to be expected. And, you know, before we came on air, we were talking about things like venture capital funds and investment. I'm not even sure. Money obviously accelerates things, but it doesn't take out the need for time completely. It doesn't, even money doesn't necessarily create an overnight success. That's so true. Well, we also, weren't we, because the other, the other mistake I've made, and I think a lot of people do, is when you put your business plan together, you only look at the upside. I mean, I've been guilty of this so many times. Like literally go, well, if we win this customer, we'll win that customer. We'll launch this thing on top of that. And, not that. and you kind of 
build these bricks up like this kind of the waterfall. I don't know why it's called a waterfall because waterfall goes down. It should be the opposite. These go up. It should go up, right? uh, An inverted waterfall, you know what I mean? Hockey stick, right? Yeah. And and you just do that. And the couple of times where I've gone away and got funding and and, and kind of launched a business, the same thing has happened exactly to me both times. I've lost about 30% of the business both times, right? One was due to a factory problem and the other one was due to a major customer pulling out at the last minute, right? So in both times in the first year, I've been massively down versus my projection of being massively up. And I think we just, maybe it's, I don't know whether it's a me thing, but I think we don't anticipate necessarily, you know, the challenges and the risks involved. And I think it'd be much better if we went in eyes wide open and said, let's assume we're going to have some challenges and let's pace ourselves and let's know that it's going to take a bit of time, put a more kind of conservative plan in place. I mean, I think challenges are inevitable, aren't they? Like there's always a challenge. So, you know, in all the business I've had, there's always been things go wrong. People, people leaving, you know, getting blocked off Amazon. There's always, always something that happens somewhere. I think it's part of what has to be expected. Well, I, th- I think a smart thing to do would be invest in businesses where they've been through that already. <laughs> you know, like, well, that's that, why that's all the funds are looking it? for profitable businesses, yeah. isn't it? Because yeah. they do want to invest in when they've been through Now, I want to ask you about this because yeah. you're also an investor, aren't you? You've I also am, got yeah. an investment fund as well. So- well, we have. I have my own personal investments and I'm a shareholder in an angel investment network called Bolt Angels, which is a, a syndicate. So how would, as you look at opportunities that are presented to you, what would you look for in a business to invest in it? So I think in my own personal investments that I look for outside of Bolt Angels, which invests in tech. So that's a bit different. It's a different space. I look like the funds do for sensible. Well, no, I don't know if funds do look for this. They are looking right now because they're under pressure, but they'll go back to looking for sort of other stuff. I look for sensible, profitable businesses with people who can operate the business really well. And the people have such capability that they protect the business so that they may have a big team around them right now because the business is going well. But in the event that something goes wrong, it can be scaled right back and that person can still operate it. So the value won't be lost completely and it can be rebuilt. What I don't like is when there's such cost in team and revenue driving and delivery, or there's too much cost and overhead. So I don't like it when there's a lot of cost and overhead support management. I just think I like efficiency in life and everything. And I don't like, yeah, I mean, basically I'm looking for people who can protect the business. If it all goes back, it can still go back to an acorn from which it can grow again versus disappearing from planet earth altogether. So I want it to still be able to be an acorn because then it can survive. Yeah, that makes lots of sense. One of the mysteries for me with this has always been, how do you find the partners to get funding from? Because it's, it, it's, it's a very opaque world, isn't it? And you and I think if I was a startup today, I just wouldn't know where to look. So where, where would someone go to find you or find other investments? Well, I think it's network, right? I think, I think it's really coming through word of mouth. I mean, I think there's a load of platform. I think there's so many funds around right now. There must have been an explosion in the creation of funds along with the e-commerce, AI and tech booms. So I think there's a huge amount of funds all looking out for deals. If anything, I'd say there's probably a shortage of good deals. You know, there's a there's a lot of, if you're really looking for kind of profitable businesses that have been through that pain point, there's obviously a huge number of startups with amazing plans and, you know, great visions. So that's not everybody's cup of tea. I think when you're actually looking for, you know, really good, steady, you call them boring, right? Businesses that are working, have, you know, are just steady growth, are profitable. 
I don't think there's many of those. I think lots of those owners would be yeah. reticent to take on investment made, depending on their plans. You made a really good point about network, actually. I, 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 was, I was looking for investment when I was between jobs uh, a few years ago. And the thing that stunned me, I, was, I, I put together a 100-day um, plan for myself. And uh, my, my ambition was meet 100 people in 100 days. And I think I only had about 35 people already kind of guaranteed or whatever. So what I did, I thought the only way to get to 100... I'll ask each person for three recommendations of people that might have access to money that I needed. So By the way, I like that as a 100-day plan. I think that's it a good really one. Works. Yeah, I think that's it, a really I, good honestly, one. Honestly, yeah, big I, tip for anyone listening, yeah. it 100% works. The, and I learned quite a few, a number of things I learned, right? First thing I learned is people are way more generous than I expected. So, you know, most of them didn't know me, but because I was referred through someone they knew, they kind of, I, I kind of got, had that borrowed trust, I guess, with them. But people, people, you know, very busy, wealthy people were, were willing to give me time, listen to my idea, give me feedback. That was the first thing. So never underestimate people's generosity. The second thing that really surprised me, I got this feedback from one investor and he said, um, your, your idea is a bit unformed, but I'll back you. And I'm like, Really? He said, yeah, I'll back you because I know what you've done before. You've got a track record. This is a this is a category that you know. This is an idea, you know, shaping up, you know, and you've got the skills. There are very few people in the market that have got the kind of knowledge you have. And I would much rather back you with an unformed idea because I know you'll find the answer mm -hmm. than a fully formed idea from someone I don't know and trust. I thought that was interesting. I mean, that's what I'm talking about with the capability of the operator. So if I look at one of my investments, which is into a brand called Space Goods. Now, you've just won the performance marketing. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, just, just to, just to announce that. Yes. Has it been in announced? In it, it, it broke in the last episode, actually. It broke in the last yeah, episode. Okay, so remind so listeners and viewers. So, of so the, you've uh, just won the most powerful yeah. performance marketer in the world know, or some so. sort of amazing that's award. Right. Thank you. Thank you for I mentioning mean, it, by the way. E well, e-commerce <laughs> brands are essentially, the performance marketing element is the, a very tough er area to solve and a very important area. It's a frontline revenue driving activity often for brands. And, you know, the reason that I invest in space goods is because, you know, I, for many years, Bolt Digital was a purely performance marketing agency. We had... I've employed a lot of performance marketers. You know, I still think I'm the most capable of everyone I've ever employed because I think, and I'd love to do a performance marketing competition with you and see if you are the best performance I, marketer in the world. This, this, okay, um, game on, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it here first. I don't know how we can do I, it, but I'd love quick, to set so. that up. Yeah, but okay, anyway, right, yeah. Matt, the founder of Space Goods, mm. is a brilliant performance marketer. Yes. And that is an incredible and very rare skill. And it's because of him. So there might be imperfections around the brand but I'm like if anybody can make this work this person can because they've got that essential skill of performance yeah. marketing and that's why I invested in space goods for instance the, the, the other the other feedback I got when I was working in private equity actually when they're looking at scale-ups this is this was sort of 10 million plus investments um I was surprised how simple the approach was because I kind of in my head oh actually quick interesting story about how that came around so I didn't know anybody in private equity because it is by definition private, isn't it? So no one advertises. <laughs> like there's no big advert down the street. One investment, phone me. You know what I mean? That doesn't happen, right? This is partly where I asked the question. Like, how do you connect it? Anyway, someone said to me, it's quite a funny story. Someone said to me, um, uh, go to a reverse headhunter. I didn't even know this existed, right? But there was there are people that um, that you brief to get you into a job, right? Rather than the other way around. So they're not working for the company, they're working for you. Yeah. So you like pay them it's like 10 grand or something. And then they go out and sort of plant you in a, in a particular company. Whatever. Anyway, so I went to met the person and I said, look, I want to get into private equity. I want to invest, that sort of whole thing, right? And um, she gave me some advice, which meant I didn't need to commission her, which I thought was a bit unfortunate for her. But she said to me, I'll make you a bet, John. In your phone right now is somebody 
that knows exactly the person in private equity that you need to meet. And I'm like, oh, come on. I'm like, that's, that's not going to happen. Anyway, so I left. I, I was walking down the stairs out the building and uh, I thought, oh, God, I'll give it a go. I got to see. And I went to see and went, oh, hang on a second. He's just sold a business. He must have had funding. Anyway, so I phoned him up. He said, I'd love to help you. And he said, and he texted me three contacts. He said, start with that one, then that one, then that one. But I'll go that one first. Tell him I sent you. Within two weeks, I was talking about a deal. In two weeks. That's incredible. Right? I mean, it's just insane. But I, I started that conversation thinking, there's no way I'm going to yeah. ever know anybody and that sort of thing. So anyway, you'd be surprised. Um, anyway, sorry, that wasn't the point of what I was going to say. But when I, when I met them thinking, you know, they, they, run, they were running hundreds of millions of pounds of a fund. They said their model was very simple. It was three things. They said the first thing they do whenever they buy a business is they employ the best design agency they can in the world. Because what they say is if, if you get the proposition, the design, the idea, the packaging, you get that right from day one and chances are it will fly. The second thing, back to your point, is you you handpick the very best people. They, they called it you hire two levels up. You kind of, you, you, you basically get the best person in the industry. I mean, quite funnily enough, actually, when, uh, when we got into IP, IP disputes, they'd put, you know, the entire, you know, the top five lawyers in London on retainer on on this particular topic just to protect the IP. Yeah, you yeah. know, there were certain things they were absolutely yeah. hot on. And then the third thing they did, which again makes sense, but feels quite bold, is they would invest in capacity. They'd invest in three or four times capacity because the only way you're going to get to fantastic growth is by making, well, efficiency, actually, back to what you said, they built in efficiency into operation. They stripped as much cost out so that, you know, the margin would be made and cost would be covered. Then you can invest for growth. I mean, I'm a mad, yeah. And I think efficiency is so important. I'm a mad, and I think anyone who's operated an agency knows about efficiency and the importance of understanding your revenue, driving people, keeping costs down and and knowing every cost per hour, et cetera. I'm a mad efficiency person to a sort of obsessive, crazy level. Um, And I think it's so important because it again gives you protection. If I know that I can do for two grand a month, what other people will spend 30 on, then I've protected myself and I've given myself time because I know my goals are going to take time. And I haven't given myself the stress of like, this overhead cost needs to be met. And that comes through efficiency. And that comes through the use of AI, the use of tech, in our instance right now, the way we work is with a lot of offshore um, offshore employees. That has been an absolute game changer for efficiency. And I've always used people offshore, but you know, this time last year, I had a very large UK-based team in London, and I actually made them all redundant for efficiency's purposes mm. because you know margins get tighter and tighter. And I was like, no, I've got to turn this model on its head. Like, you've got to push for efficiency. You have to because it protects everything. Yeah, that makes lots of sense. We talked earlier, didn't we, about the lack of uh, businesses to invest in at the moment. Uh, one of the trends over the last few years, of course, has been direct-to-consumer, and that's been a really challenging time, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, the yeah. amount of very high-profile D2C businesses now that are worth nothing compared yeah. to just a year ago, yeah. and there was a big COVID, you know, the COVID obviously bounce that they got, um, and now that's reversed out, and the funding and all that kind of thing, and the overvaluations and the high gearing, all, the, all that's happened. Um, you know, you're an expert in this area. Yeah. What's your sort of take on the D to C market and what's going on. At the I mean, moment. yeah, so the it's, main, it's a bit crazy. I have, a, I have it's, a set of businesses and, and, and the main one is in the D to C market and has been since 2017. I think, I mean, I used to think it was crazy at the time, right? People used to show up and be like, I'm a beauty tech brand. I used to think, hang on, you sell mascara and you use Shopify, like call me old fashioned, but I'm not sure that equals beauty tech, but 
I mean, people seem to be investing in this. Like you've got this prestigious fund involved. And I was thinking, I think I am a bit of a crashing bore at times. So I was thinking, oh, well, I'm very literal. So I was thinking, this is not beauty tech. This is just Shopify site. Like, come on, guys. Um, so I think it's, it is, you know, it, it's not just what's happened is, which people don't often talk about, is the democratization of product creation which has meant there are just the British consumer must be absolutely inundated with brands, options, possibilities. So there's all these forces, you know, an opportunity, the direct to consumer opportunity came out because of a advertising arbitrage space between Facebook and the British public or any, any country's public. And that's cool. But then surprise, surprise, it gets more exciting. But at the same time you had, it gets more competitive. At the same time you had this democratization of product creation, anyone and their dog can create a launcher brand. And some people have done that exceptionally well. So you actually probably have more products in Britain than we've ever had before. I don't know if there's any studies on that, but I will guarantee that is the case. And then you have a cost of living crisis and the bubble bursts. I think, I mean, my view on it is the direct consumer e-commerce channel is a really important channel and always will be. I am pleased to see some of this stuff go. I really am. I am sick to the back teeth of talking to people about their skincare brand that's exactly the same as everybody else's. They've got some wild ingredient. You know, we, we, we used to call it the herbs of the Atlas Mountain because they would think, well, the fact that they've sort of trekked to the top of some mountain to collect a particular leaf means that this clean skincare brand is now going to fly. And it's like, my God, the underappreciation of the complexity of e-commerce success and it just got too OTT. It's got to calm down. But regardless of that, the e-commerce channel and the possibility for e-commerce brands to exist is going to continue to yeah. be viable. We need a clear out in it. We, we really do. do. Yeah. We really do. I mean, the opportunity is amazing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. The, the, I mean, it's a general... And it's, the opportunity will still be growing. If you were some someone somewhere can do a study, I'm sure, where they can remove the oversupply of products and they can remove some of the madness. And, and the channel, of course, is going to grow. There's still a load of retailers that aren't even mastering e-commerce there's still people who will have amazing products that should and must set up e-commerce yeah. brands a hundred percent so i try and just focus on the quality yes. you know like and we just try and you know we've seen enough since 2017 to just say to people very bluntly look your unit economics aren't right clean beauty like yeah, seriously you want to take that on as a category um and we're very blunt with all the brands that come to our workshops and our conferences we do a big spreadsheet. We can tell them straight away they're going to be successful or not. And it's much better to tell someone your unit economics are off. This doesn't mean you should shut down now, but it means you are carrying a risk and you need to adjust all these metrics. And here's what you need to do. So at least they're empowered with the financial yeah. facts about their business. So, so, so as you're assessing them, you start with unit economics, right? So is yeah, it and we always and actually we always have done in bulk yeah. digital, which is because of me and my co-founder, my partners, our background where we both sold businesses, we always started not with unit economics because that phrase is quite a new phrase. We started with, are they, what are they, what's the value? Are they trying to sell this business? Like, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to sell it? And do they have a hope in hell of actually selling it for what they think they're going to sell yeah. it? So we, and that really is unit economics. Yeah. So, so, so the, 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 whether it's profitable, I get that. How would you, given there are thousands, I guess, probably hundreds of thousands of different products out there that anyone's launching on any kind of day, how do you cut through all that? I mean, it's partly about the brand. You mentioned those private equity companies who will look for the brand. It's partly about being able to create a kind of standout brand. It's partly about the category, managing to pinpoint a category. And I still see people do it, you know, even now. Who was it when I was like, wow, that's good. You've actually, you've properly gone into a category and you found a sub niche and that's good. I'm impressed. So that's still possible to do. 
And then I think it comes back to the capability. I re- this is why, you know, I'd invest in someone like a Matt at Space Goods, because it comes back to the capability of the founder and or the team to deal with the complexity that an e-commerce business faces, because they operate on shifting sands. The landscapes, I mean, you know this, you're in performance marketer, you build processes and the platform changes, you have to start again. I've never known a business that's operating on shifting sands in the way these e-commerce businesses do. So you've got to have somebody, a team who are self-teachers, who will get out and learn stuff, who will just realize that any of these things, any of the SaaS, whatever, it can all be taught to themselves. They can teach all to themselves and they have that grit because then I think they're in with a chance. That's that's the USP is we see so many brands, very famous, you know, high street brands or or brands that are sold in lots of boots types of brands. And you just think, God, guys, you know, in e-commerce, like you just, nobody here has even the start of the skills you need, let alone the true performance marketing skills, the self-teaching skills. So who would you pick if you were to pick two or three brands today that you look at and go, they are nailing it at the moment from a DC perspective. Well, I mean, the inky list, but we train their in-house D2C team. Okay, so, all right, you're so, not allowed to pick so, from your so. own, all right? So, you know, let, let, let's pick from no, outside your little Anyway, stable. I mean, Colette, the founder's incredible. She's done incredibly well. Um, amazing at creating products. Well, we've got our conference in a few weeks. We always try and have the top brands. So speaking at our conference, we have Our Place, which is the cookery brand, which is, has Selena Gomez as their main ambassador, that, and, and Tails.com, the personalised dog food brand. They're both 100 million pound, dollar, pound plus brands. They're both huge. When you talk to their team, I mean, it's full of capability. You know, it's like a team full of performance marketers. And because I'm a performance marketer, I love teams like that. You know, when you just like, my God, I'm in a room with 10 performance I, I love marketers. The, I love the fact that the, the episode after I win performance marketer of the year, I end up with an actual performance marketer on the podcast. <laughs> this is this is the irony of ironies, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, but this is good for my health. This is great. Um <laughs> Yeah, so you've actually created like a, a D2C live event, which is slightly ironic, of course, having a live event to talk about D2C. But um, why did you set it up? Because it sounds like a fascinating thing. Oh, it's brilliant. D2C Live is our conference. This is our fifth conference. We run two a year. I mean, it started because we were obviously, I was running an e-commerce, a standard agency, a performance marketing agency, just to mention performance marketing again. Thank you. And, um, <laughs> you know, we were working with doing performance marketing for lots of people. And um, now I just sort of felt, I know a lot of people in this. We'd, we'd had a lot of success. It had made us very high profile, particularly in beauty, in the beauty vertical. And I was thinking, so weird. Lots of these people don't know each other. So the interesting thing about e-commerce is unlike other careers where people might go through a, a career path and they arrive on the scene and they know Peter because they used to work together 20 years ago. In e-commerce, you have this mad mix of people. So you have all these retail people. They all know each other. They're all selling in boots and have shops and they're all very, they all used to work on makeup counters and et cetera. Then you have all these self-starters who've created products out of some pain they've discovered, some of whom have become phenomenally successful, you know, huge, huge brands, but essentially starting out with some random person in some town somewhere who knows nobody. So that's how you have this massive fragmentation across e-commerce where actually outside of the retail set, people don't really know each other. And I sort of think, kept thinking it was so weird. Like, why don't these people know each other? To me, they, particularly the performance marketing types, because I, I was seeing, you'll know when you meet performance marketers, you know, you're in you, the company you know. of one. You know when you know, right? You, you know, know when you know. And I, and they're often we're amongst friends here, we're amongst so friends. this is good. Often they're young guys, like 26 to 32 years old. Yeah. Very, very, Obviously very like clever me. guys. Yeah. Exactly yeah. like you, yeah. And and I'm definitely not like the mother who's like looking after them all. But I used to think, my God, you've got this young guy in his bedroom over there who's really clever doing amazing things. 
another young guy in his bedroom over there. Like, why don't they know each other? They're both like completely isolated. Mm. So we started bringing people together and thought, could we have an event, maybe get 12 of these types together and introduce them? That turned into our first conference, 120 people completely sold out, amazing speakers. And really that saw the business um, take a pivot away from standard agency into conferences, community, education, networking and introductions. And to be honest, because I'm a former journalist, that's sort of, I was never clear why I was doing, why, how, you know, I became a performance marketer and was very good at it. But bearing in mind, I was originally a journalist. I wasn't really clear how that had happened. You know, one of those weird transitions. So, Most careers are like that, aren't they? Yeah, they you, are. You suddenly end up like, somewhere. Like, I, I, like me doing what I do now was never on in the plan exactly, at any point ever. Know. And then you sort of have, a modicum of success and it kind of surprises you. Yeah. Go, oh, I know. Oh, I, know. I didn't think I was cut out for this. Yeah. It's a bit surprising. Um, the weird one for me actually was, um, I, I really, actually, I'm the opposite to you, right? Because I hated English at school and I was really bad at it. And I was, you know, writing is like my least favourite thing. And now I've started writing for Marketing Week doing columns and it's like, and whenever I get an email from Russell, the editor going, oh yeah, nice job on the, on the column. I just, it's on those pinch me, pinch me moments. Cause I'm like, oh, if only he knew that I'd like, I, I find writing, sitting down and writing something quite scary, you know, uh, you wouldn't believe it looking at my LinkedIn actually, by the way, but it's something <laughs> I, I find really hard and I've, I've had to, I've had to almost teach myself and I think train writing myself. is really hard. I it think is, it is it's really not hard. as easy as it looks because it looks definitely not. great and, when it's finished. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and talking of writing, I think I was a much better writer in the days where at, 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 on the Daily Mail's production line where you just sat down and had to start writing um, than I am now. But I think it's also very hard to write in your own voice and and or to find your own voice, this cliched phrase of finding your own voice. And I'm someone who wrote for many years, but only ever in the voice of the Daily Mail, Grazia, Marie Claire, or, if, you know, putting into the voice of these mass publications, it's extremely hard to find your own voice, I think, particularly mm. when you're used to hiding behind the voice of the Daily Mail. That's very hard <laughs> to then know what you actually think. I actually once, someone on LinkedIn, a, a really good copywriter, was doing kind of personas and different kind of, you know, styles. And she picked me as a particular kind of style of writer. I was like, oh, that was interesting. Well, you're obviously a very good writer. I, what? Oh, yeah, but apparently so. Anyway, but uh, not on the list of things I ever thought was going to happen. Um, but talking about all this kind of stuff, uh, the other thing that's interesting about your career is how you've also built a personal brand. Yeah. Was that an int- were you intending for that to be the case rather than building the brands that you know, you've owned 100%. and managed? I mean, was that a strategy for you? Yes, yes, it was. So it comes back to 2007 and me going to these American conferences on, you know, for talk to the press personal branding was a thing then and and also don't forget I'd been at a newspaper where it was clear that people who were we used to call it visible experts and really they were on tv they were on this morning you know they were sort of sex commentators relationship commentators you know Dr Hillary what's his name you know they, they were we used to call them the visible experts or the talking heads so it was very clear even in the traditional media that there was a space for visible experts or talking heads And that's obviously been rebranded personal branding. But yes, 100% it was a strategy. You know, firstly, I was flying to America. You know, I went to a Gary Vaynerchuk conference. I did stuff with Derek Halpern. I was obsessed with the likes of Marie Forleo. This is way back in sort of 2007 to 2014. And it was clear that the Americans were embracing personal branding. And I I knew it was important because I knew that being a visible expert and a talking head was important. And I knew that lots of people in the UK weren't really prepared to do it. So, I mean... 
it's I get compliments about my personal brand, including from you, but from my point of view, it's been it's very amazing. chaotic. I, it's very impressive. It's so. been very chaotic. I did do the website comparison between yours and mine, I have to yeah, say. But that's, a new, that's an updated website, which is a bit OTT. But... Do check it out, ladies and gentlemen, I have to say. It's, <laughs> it's impressive. But it was, and with Talk to the Press, it particularly came a strategy because essentially I create a website and it's like, you know, if you want to sell your story, we're the trusted for we're the trusted people in this market. Obviously, people are suspicious of journalists. And I was a journalist, but I was like, well, there's no reason to be suspicious of me. To prove that, I put myself all over that website. I was, we did videos, you know, I was very much like photos everywhere, had photo shoots. In 2007, this was quite audacious. You know, my my former colleagues at the mail, I, I'm sure, slagged me off a bit and thought I was getting a bit OTT. But it was imperative to me to get the trust. How else was I going to get story? First of all, I was worried about some of the ways the tabloids treated these story sellers, where they get the story once and the whole person's cast out. I did think there was a problem in the industry. But also, if you are a person under huge pressure and you're trying to make a decision fast, you just need to see a friendly face. And I thought, well, I can be that friendly face and live it. So my personal brand really came in and talked to the press back in 2007. And actually... I still, just this week, somebody emailed me a huge story. If it came out, it would be massive headline news. And I'm like, oh, God, I haven't done story brokering for years. Like, But that's the power of the personal yeah, brand, that out of the blue, I get an email from California, someone telling me, you know, it's a kiss and tell, essentially, somebody globally famous. And it's like, okay, firstly, I haven't done a kiss and tell story for years. But that's the power of the personal brand, because I, I was a trusted force. You know, there was a lot of... We did a, a lot of good representation of a lot of people in extremely vulnerable situations, and sometimes they're still in touch. So, I the personal brand was a hundred percent a choice at that point. Past that point, it just became increasingly normal. I wrote a book about personal branding in two thousand and sixteen, which again was some nearly ten years on from That's when quite I started. A long time ago, isn't it? Well, so, it was ten years on yeah. from when I'd first used my personal brand. I wrote a book about personal branding, which again was only focused around the Americans. Gary Vaynerchuk by this point mm -hmm. was huge. Grant Cardone, Marie Forleo, those types were... Seth Godin was one of the people I interviewed for the book. And it was just... And I kept thinking at any point it's got to hit the UK. I still don't think it's properly landed. I mean, your hat's off to you for doing a podcast and ranking so well outside of rare people like you and Stephen Bartlett. I still think it's an underutilised asset in the UK. Yeah. And in all the brands we've worked there's with. There's something about the Brits, isn't it? We find it a bit uncomfortable. I find it uncomfortable. Now I, I, and everyone of, thinks you're just showing off or something. Yeah, I know. It's and like, I, no, I literally, you know. even now, after years of doing personal brand, I still feel paranoid posting on Instagram because I think my friends are going to be slagging me off and thinking yeah. I think I'm up myself. That's that's the issue, isn't it? Yeah, that's the issue. But the Americans don't feel that, right? They don't feel that. So they, they haven't got that complex. No, they just don't feel that, no. Um, well, I mean, some of them might do, but speaking very generally, no, they don't. So having met some of the, I guess, most influential people in, in business that you just name check there, what's the secret to their personal brand? How have they built it up? Volume. I think they've done volume and continuous improvement is what I think they've done. I mean, some of them are quite well off, so they can put resource into it. You, you take the likes of Grant Cardone, you know, who was in our interview, hilarious, but incredibly like off the wall like you know you're doing an interview with someone you're thinking am I actually talking to someone who's a bit bonkers here like this is crazy I mean he's obviously put a lot of resource into it because he has the money the rest I think have just done volume and consistency and continuous improvement so iterating see what iterating, works yeah develop. because I think there's no taking away from the time you have to do at the coalface and I wrote about this so I, I had another bit before called the million dollar blog which was about blogging to build a personal brand that was a bestseller in both books, every single person interviewed, it was 50% how to do it and 50% interviews. 
with some pretty famous people. In both books, every single one of those people talked about the time at the coalface. I don't think there's any way to bypass it. You know, I think it's that whole cliche of getting comfortable in your own skin, find your own voice. I don't, still don't feel I'm there at all. Um, people like you who've committed a podcast for four years, I think you've done absolutely brilliantly. And I think it's very hard for people to do. It's hard to divert time away from your actual work to do a personal brand. It's hard to run a production. It's hard to find your voice. It's hard to feel okay about it and not think your friends are sagging you off. Yeah. You know, all That's of that true. stuff. That's you, true. You, 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 I find I have to almost override what I think people are thinking, if you know what I mean. You, you almost have to kind of And I'm sure some people out. are thinking yeah, that of course, because yeah. Brits are cynical yeah, as well. Yeah, they are. You know that yeah, some I of know. them are thinking. You know exactly what they're thinking. Yeah, you know exactly the WhatsApp cat. chats yeah, that are going. Exactly. exactly and I think in said. America, you yeah. can reassure yourself that that probably isn't happening. But I think in the UK... Well, Americans tend to cheer that on, yeah, don't they? they? I think they, they, in the UK... We're a bit snide, but in America, they're like, give you a round of applause and like, go for it, man. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, it is happening. Like, British Brits are a bit snide. You're a bit like... I can imagine like, oh, you know, your friends have dinner well she's certainly doing a lot of videos you know, uh, yeah like exactly <laughs> you know, actually you know you know my friend that uh, starts with a c that's in my book that got me into private equity yeah right? yeah yeah he moved to la to start his next business right the only reason he said is because you go to la and Everyone wants you to be successful. Yeah. Everybody. And he just said, in the UK, they'll pick a hole in it. They'll be cynical. They'll, they'll, they'll talk it down. They'll talk behind your back. He said, LA, everyone wants you totally. to be successful. Totally. And also, bear in mind, for me, a lot of my friends are journalists. You know, we are so cynical. Journalists are so yeah. cynical. You know, you, you, it's it's in your it's in the way the stories work. You know, one of the funniest stories we all had to do all the time was like, what's wrong with or why can't so-and-so find love? And it was always the story of, you know, Kate Moss, right, despite being the global supermodel, so perfect, a multimillionaire. Why can't so and so find yeah. love? So I know that my friends are cynical as well. I have the evidence because I sat with them on a national newspaper for years. Now you did tell me talking about Gary V. Yeah. Gary V's has some help, hasn't he? Gary V has had some help. Well, he's got a whole. I think he has a team of at any one time between six and thirty people on his brand. It's a team that's gone up and down over time. But you know, the main sort of creator or creative vision over the past 11 years has been a videographer called David Rock, also known as D-Rock. I need to meet D-Rock. I think this needs to happen. Well, D-Rock is... Uh, <laughs> so D-Rock get some is advice a, from D-Rock. Yeah, get some advice. Well, I tell you what D-Rock's advice is and Gary... And, we, and through... So we, we have an event with D-Rock this week. He's coming to the UK. He's left VaynerMedia. He's looking at how he's going to build his personal brand, uh, how he's going to... What work he's going to do and what he's going to do next, having been in VaynerMedia as kind of the head creator for Gary Vaynerchuk's personal brand for many, many years. We have learned so much about their production process and everything from from the time we spent with D-Rock so far. And it is incredible in terms of, I would say if I was to summarise what their advice is, first of all is formats. So Gary Vaynerchuk has a lot of Gary V, Trash Talks, Daily V, Tea with Gary V. The number of formats they've actually tested and ditched is about four or five times the formats that we all know interesting yeah so this yeah. is very interesting yeah. so they did they've done uh, uh, trash talk yeah i said trash yeah. talk. so whatever we know four or five key formats there's probably been 20 tested 15 of which have now been when you dished. say tested do you mean they've actually gone live and then they've yeah. cancelled or yeah. they've they've done a sort of control no no they've gone live they, they've, they've published they hasn't really it. gone anywhere so yeah. they've just like you know that's a dilemma though isn't it because like you know I, i'd have probably ditched my podcast after the first six months if, yeah, if, if i was being but maybe too... at that scale they're able to see pretty fast what's going to yeah. land because it's it, obviously vaynerchuk personal brand is huge yeah 
The next thing, their main advice is, is in, and, and Gary Vaynerchuk gives this advice all the time, all across the internet, is just publish more, 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 more formats, more repurposing, more, more. So multi channels, so get across lots of channels. You know, I think they're publishing, it's crazy, something like 70 times a day. Wow. I know. And that will include, you know, the, the channels that are not in mainstream use, which the modern channels, they've just gone from my mind, but you know, all the ones that everyone's using now. The on ones the, the kids are using. Yeah, yeah, the ones the kids are using, yeah. all of that. You know, Twitch, like he is yeah. an unbelievable production. That's interesting. I actually had Rob Mayhew on the podcast recently and he, he's done an amazing job. And uh, so he's a TikTok influencer and he's transitioned to LinkedIn. And he said that what he's done, he just, when he went to LinkedIn, he committed for, I think, 100 days or so and literally doing two posts a day. Now, if you read read up on LinkedIn, you're not supposed to do that because it's like too much content, but he just repurposed content from one channel, put it on the other and just went twice a day, like you say, volume, 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 and went from 50 to 100,000 followers, I think, in that period of time. Wow, that's really impressive. Very. Now, he, he had an established based on one channel. They're quite different channels, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, one's oh, very different consumer channels, and yeah. obviously one's business, but he was able to use the content from one, pick the best, repurpose it. But he said he just, he just went at it for... I think it was 90 days or so, just twice a day, go, go, go. I mean, actually, one of my projects has just gone viral in TikTok and I've been analysing what it took to get to that. And it's quite phenomenal what's gone into it. It's something like 300 videos. I mean, it's not, this is not, I'm not about so to you've tell you've done story. 300 videos prior, do you mean, to, to this point? Yeah, I'm just it... doing the analysis now because it's just gone viral. This is our not-for-profit biz kids, which teaches children entrepreneurship. Um, and it will become a charity because it's gone viral and now it's all happening. But actually, when you look at what went in to get to that point, I've got three projects on TikTok, which are all about that. Like, how do you, how is this algorithm working? How do we make them go viral? And they've all done pretty well, to be honest. But this one's now taken off. And when you actually look at what we've done, it's a tremendous amount. of. You've talked about your mm. four years in this podcast. Mm. So we've done 300. This so the teaches kids entrepreneurship. We've done 300 videos of lesson summaries. We've done weekly live streams teaching kids. We've really like pushed through that pain period of finding our voice or whatever it is. I've had to overcome the hurdles of picking up the camera and just doing it without editing with the green screen. And it's like, and then it goes viral. And which, was it a particular video that went viral? Oh, it was also the content topic. But yeah, I think the content, that... well, what I've noticed about, because it's amazing when something goes viral, if you're a performance marketer, which I know you are, okay. what Thank it you. then shows you about the algorithm, because then yeah. you can start feeding stuff in, you know, like if you have, um, well, like you would with a winning campaign, you can start feeding stuff in and seeing how the algorithm responds. So I'm at the moment in this like brilliant phase of, being able to do that, which I would have done on Facebook in 2017. So it's the same thing. The content, yeah, because it's actually the content that has gone viral is the kids actually make going out, creating a jewellery stall and making £155. But what I've noticed is TikTok has given the entire feed an uplift. So as a result, you imagine a feed gets really, really long. You have a viral incident in one section of it, but the whole feed has been uplifted. Yeah, I get the same on this podcast, actually. So uh, last week's episode with Mark Ritson did particularly well. And it's it it just it's like a wave. Yeah. It just sort of you get this wave across all the previous episodes, kind of get a lift as well at the yeah, same time. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about biz kids. That's interesting. So what one of the um uh, my oldest daughter actually is uh really into business. And it's interesting, just she just chosen her A levels and she um didn't choose business in the end. She dropped out of business because she didn't think it was serious enough. And I was I was like, what, you know, I think there's nothing better than business, right? You know, in terms of creating jobs, creating value, oh, yeah. you know, helping the economy. And, and I know, I'm pretty sure she's going to be a successful businesswoman in her own right. She's got so many, so much ambition. But 
but school doesn't really teach you business skills, does it? And I, I mean, I know I was frustrated at like not getting the kind of skills that you need. Um, it feels like a real opportunity, doesn't it, to teach kids about being entrepreneurial oh, totally, yeah. and setting them up for what they're going to spend a lot of their life doing, you know. Uh, once well, whether they they're in education. a job or not, they need to understand that businesses kind of want to grow and yeah. drive money. Yeah, I mean, BizKids came about because of a business I had, which I'm still a shareholder in, called the Notting Hill Shopping Bag, which is a sou- very simple souvenir tote bag that sells to tourists visiting Notting Hill. And I started it in 2008, so a long time ago. But And I already had talked to the press at that point, which I couldn't really articulate because remember, I didn't have the vocabulary of business. Once I got the Notting Hill Shopping Bag and I went out and wholesaled it, I went out on foot round Portobello Market and wholesaled this bag into various shops and stores. And it was obviously a painful process. You know, some people were very rude. Some people said no. Some people said yes. You know, it's like I found it traumatizing, to be honest. I spent three days procrastinating before I even did it. Once I'd done it, I then thought, uh, why didn't anyone tell me like this is this simple? Why didn't anyone tell me about going out, putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation, having some face-to-face conversations and doing a simple trade, you know, you buy this for two and you sell it for four and I get one, like type of thing. And so that was one part of what started BizKids is I couldn't believe that I'd only learned this accidentally at the age of 30. That then helped me. My business in the Notting Hill shopping bag then helped me understand that Talk to the Press was also selling a product. It was just a variably priced product. I couldn't have articulated that until I'd had this on the ground experience. I just couldn't articulate it. Secondly, within Portobello Market, there's a lot of children working on stalls and they will be the children of the stallholders. A lot of the stallholders, by the way, are incredibly wealthy. They own half the property of Notting Hill and they have <laughs> 300 years of stallholding in their family. But anyway, they bring their children onto these stalls. And I remember seeing 12-year-old kids like talking to people, you know, tr- doing doing cashing up, you know, doing negotiation on prices. Market, the market environment is a brilliant environment. I learned a lot in it and I saw a lot of children learning a lot in it. And I just felt, wow. I wish I'd learned this earlier. So I wanted to have some sort of scheme that brought people into Portobello Market was the original idea. That didn't come to pass. But during lockdown, I taught my own kids uh, entrepreneurship instead of um, the national curriculum. And then next thing I knew, within a few weeks, we had 300 children a day doing entrepreneurship. During lockdown for seven weeks, every single day, I taught it with my daughter, then seven as my co-host. Really, I just needed someone to look after her. She had to stand next to me. Um, and and um, anyway, then we started again this year as the schools went. I always knew it was a great thing, but work, life takes over, lockdown ends. You're like, my God, I can't just teach entrepreneurship. Like, I've got business to run. Anyway, this year we started again because, you know, some of the investments had done well. The way I was working had changed. And I was like, no, I put a lot. Of, we put a lot of time into this. So Annie and I started presenting it again. Plus, I wanted to learn TikTok and I was like, I'm going to take this out on TikTok and I'm going to understand this algorithm and how's it, how it's working and what's going on. So we teach it every Monday at 4.30 as an after school club. It's completely free. And I just teach kind of simple business lessons. That I think they should know, not because I think children should be working now at all, but because I think they need to understand some broader things about the way the world is at working. So we teach entrepreneurship, opportunity spotting, financial literacy and personal development just to help them realise that opportunities are all around them and they have a choice at any one point to get a job or do something on their own. And even if they're in the job, they should be thinking about contributing positively to the company. And then that's just gone viral because the kids have started going out and selling stuff and made £155, which obviously is a huge amount of money when you're 10. That's a lot of money. And that has led to dozens of kids coming forward on TikTok, all of whom are running businesses, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, loads of parents reaching out saying... We want our kids to learn this sort of thing. We've just been donated. I mean, it, I, I need. It's going to have to become a charity. But we've just been donated 
um, 20 free kits to give to disadvantaged children. We have got messages, you know, please, I want to earn some money. You know, my family can't afford this. Parents saying I'm a single mum, but I'd love my child to learn this. And that's just really happened in the past few weeks, that viral activity, which is great because the bracelet making business is a very simple one, like the lemonade stand, the eBay business, the bracelet making business, from which the, what I want to give kids is not to make them work as entrepreneurs when they're 10, but to help them have their first experience of making money because that will stay with yeah, them for life. They will. They totally Standing will. Standing on yeah. a stall and coming away with £155, an illegally set up stall in a park. <laughs> It's amazing. You know, and Actually, then my, my daughter, my daughter just started A-level maths and um, she's just got permission from the teachers to do a, a, an after school maths club for the junior school, uh, well, the, the, the secondary school. And uh, she was like, oh yeah, so, it, so I'm going to charge the parents £10 per child for an hour and I'll get 12 kids. I'm like, that's 120 quid for one hour. You just teaching what you've just been taught. I'm like, that's genius. Like, you know, she's really good at maths and she's going to help the, help the kids in their GCSE. I'm I mean, like, when, we were, when, we were, when we were doing the stool, my daughter's like, we've just made 40 pounds in half an hour. And I was thinking, I think that's quite a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah. Like for anyone, like 40 pounds Well, I know, I know my daughter. Every, every time she says that, I said, well, when I was your age, I did a paper round for five pounds a week. <laughs> so just telling you a bit of inflation there. Um, just just to finish on, what um, I, I know this is a question a lot of people ask, but if you were to give one bit of advice to someone else wanting to do what you're doing, what would it be? Keep your personal costs low. Don't get suckered into Ooh, this. Like don't get suckered into this world of having stuff and elevating your household or personal costs. Because as soon as you do, you block your own ability to create and your ability to achieve what some of your goals are. And my experience has been, I've never been that into stuff anyway, particularly, but my experience has been is it definitely doesn't bring happiness. And I see people all around me having to keep up with private school fees, you know, lifestyles and, you know, all this stuff that they've put on themselves. They didn't have to do. And if you do do that, then your business, to some extent, is skewed by the owner's sort of needs. So my recommendation would be, is that, you know, and I know I sound very boring. None of this stuff brings happiness at all. You actually, what brings happiness is seeing your dreams come to light in one way or another or feeling as though you're working towards something you care about. So don't block your ability to work towards what you care about with a load of stuff that is stupid, like, you know, oh, my kids at this school, oh, we've got this car, we have these holidays, oh, you know, I bought these clothes, we've got this, we've got that. Throughout my life, I've really only ever tried to spend money outside of like just a, a small allowance on things that I know will deliver a turn. So you can renovate your property, right? Because you know that's going to that's gonna bring something add and add value. But try and think of your life like that and don't allow your money to just roll into things that are no value because you might be able to show off to your friends for two minutes, but you won't feel happy. You won't get what you're looking for. Mm. So that would be my main piece of advice. That's, that's brilliant advice. I think if I look back at the pivot points where I've thought about doing my own thing and I've looked at my overheads and went, whew, I've got to cover that much. Uh, and it, it's very so often, it blocks it's it. very, very often the reason I haven't, you know, yeah. or when I have done it and I've got, it's been really stressful because I've been making a lot less money. And I realise I can't cover my costs, and it, and, and well, then I'm that distracted. can then lead to decisions that the wrong decisions. You make in the your wrong business. decision you because you're not making the right business. No. You're making the how do I get through the next month? And I decision. think the ne exactly. And I think the next thing is if you keep your costs low, then you can make decisions that are about the business, not about you. And I think that's also yeah. important to be able to do. The business is an independent ent entity, particularly when it's employing people. 
it's not about you once it's employing people. And you you want to be able to get a balance where you win and everyone wins, but it's not just about you once you've got people who are looking to you to help them pay their rent or whatever. Well, yeah, that's a brilliant place to end. Tash, thank you so much for sharing thank all that. Thank you for having that. me. It's been brilliant. And I love the chat, performance marketer to performance marketer. <laughs> it's been brilliant. I can't <laughs> wait for this to play out. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for listening and watching to Unsent CMO. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now, if you never want to miss an episode again, please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to follow me, I'm over on LinkedIn at John Evans or on Twitter at The Uncensored CMO. See you next time.